In middle school, I was naughty. Like, not necessarily a bad kid, though I haven't confirmed that with any of my teachers from back then. Teachers from back then. Teachers from back then. We have trouble fitting in with <laughs> most things anyway, because we're very odd. We've never chosen the path of, like, what's supposed to be normal. You know, you get married, you have kids, you buy a house, you know, and then you settle in. And we never have followed those patterns. This is the Abby Normal Podcast, here to tell you that you're weird and that's normal. Cameras are very, you know, career forward, which is fine because that's what I was used to in my life. Because my mom is very career forward, right. so it was a really easy fit. Instead of having kids, we thought, oh, we're going to start a band. <laughs> yeah. After the band, we did the art gallery for 15 years or so, just trying to support people in art. We built a lot of really important relationships with artists. We just have different goals in life, and so it's hard for us to fit in. And we tried to fit into a church. You're just a square peg. That is Mr. Robert Brown, my teacher at the private Christian school my parents sent me to in seventh grade. He was a square peg in a round hole. In a sea of middle-aged white conservative teachers, Mr. Brown had shoulder-length, fluffy, probably dyed black hair, a goatee. He wore those 90s-style mechanic shirts and Doc Martin faux dress shoes. He played guitar and taught ceramics. In his yearbook picks, he's not smiling. In one, he has bleached hair, but I'm guessing he doesn't want to discuss that. He only had like two years under his belt before I appeared in his classroom. So was I your most annoying student? Not at all. (laughs) I'm relieved to hear this because I was naughty. He was my most beloved Bible teacher, but that did not prevent me from acting a fool. One time I got the ingenious idea for my bestie to write 666 on my forehead. And then while all heads were bowed and eyes closed for prayer, I got on my hands and knees and crawled out of class. This was hilarious. Back then, Mr. Brown offered the hope of individuality, but he was still part of that system in my eyes. It's definitely a Central Valley thing. This public shaming, that's just ridiculous. And, and it is so medieval, you know? Yes. Sidebar. If you want to know more about the evangelical, predominantly white Church of California's Central Valley, the EWCCCV, I would refer you to the Not the Same series, January 2022. Now that I'm an adult and have deconstructed the belief system that I learned in that school, I want to know who Mr. Brown really is and how this goth-leaning, introverted rocker dude navigated the Christian school system for almost 30 years. Turns out there were trials. We'll get there. But we have to start at the beginning with White Flight in 1980. Kids who live in the northwest side of Fresno, they started busing them into Edison High School. My parents were pretty biased at the time. So they were like, we're not sending you over there. You know, it's a bad school. It's a bad area. West Fresno was just had this stigma about it. They tried to get me into Fresno Christian, but they didn't have any 
openings. So they found another school called New Life. They opened up this class and they had like a class of like 180 students that were all ninth graders. But then their eighth grade was like 30 kids. Um, but they said this huge, huge, yeah, you know. All those school. scared parents. <laughs> yeah. They were so afraid I was going to get beat up at Edison. And... Were your parents religious? No. My dad, no. He wanted us to make our own choices. And he never took us to church and he never pressured us to go. And my mom, they kind of shared that belief because they had their own negative experience with church too. And so sure. I think that's what drove them to be that way. At New Life, he didn't get beat up in ninth grade, but he did pick up a very specific brand of Christianity within the EWCCCV, in part via the school's pastor. I remember the chapels were just, it was creepy in a way because he had this brain tumor and it just kept expanding in his skull. And his skull was actually started toward the very end of the skull was misshapen. Mm. Um, his speech was just so slurred and just like he wasn't making much sense. And he thought that God was going to take this away. So he didn't go into any kind of medical treatment. He just thought he was going to pray this thing away. And so we had chapel every Wednesday and it just got weirder and weirder. And it was all hellfire brimstone from him. You're going to go to hell. You're going to go to hell. You got to repent. You got to repent. You got to repent. Then it just kept getting a little wonkier because of his speech impediment was so bad. And then it kept progressing and getting worse and worse and worse. It became almost like this weird nightmarish kind of experience. And I really dreaded going to the chapel. So I went through my whole ninth grade year feeling like I was just terrible piece of crap, couldn't do anything right. I always felt guilty for everything in the first place. Yeah, like um, when you talk so. about that pastor, it makes me think of like the mom on Carrie, you know, it's just like yeah, it is. so it over the top. And to that. Yeah. And so instead of rebelling against it, which maybe what I should have done, I just kind of like accepted it. Like, yeah, I am terrible. I deserve to go to hell and all that kind of thing. And so I lived in that mentality for a very long time. To this day, you know, I don't feel very good about myself a lot of times, but that's just trying to deprogram all that brainwashing you receive from way back in the day from a crazy pastor just doesn't always go away so easily. So, <laughs> no, it doesn't. A lot of long-term lingering effect, you know, so... After ninth grade, he changed schools, attending the same high school that I eventually attended. He liked it. Small class size, no creepy pastor. Yeah, yeah, and I was a super sheltered person. So do you remember Randall Plogger? He transitioned as well. So he was part of the teachers that came over from New Life. So he was the teacher I really just kind of latched onto. This teacher introduced new concepts that started to chip away at the guilt. He had a whole different take on it. You know, there's consequences and things like that, but it wasn't as harsh of a message. That's why I kind of like latched onto him mm. as kind of like a father of faith for me, you know, just because he, he wasn't so brutal about it. Like, <laughs> God is loving. He's not going to come and whack you with a sledgehammer every day. And then he wasn't even until late. I mean, I still had that kind of guilt mentality through most of my, gosh, 20s, 30s, you know, until I started at Lutheran school. And then I went about grace, which is a whole different grace versus guilt.
So he spent his first years as a young Christian with a pretty serious guilt complex. And we'll loop back to this guilt versus grace theological question later. But there's more that I don't know about Mr. Brown's life. Like after high school, he went to a private Christian college and swooped up a wife real quick. I followed the sheep and I went on to Fresno Pacific College, now it's Fresno Pacific University. Mm-hmm. And so again, you're going into this super conservative Christian organization. Mm-hmm. All the girls were just like, I don't know. Is monolithic a word you can use to describe girls? <laughs> yes, like homogenous. <laughs> <laughs> but then Tamara comes in and she had the prince haircut where you have one side of your head shaved and the other side is all long. And then she had like extra ear piercings <laughs> that I'd never seen before. And she was so stylish. I mean, she just looked like, I don't know, she just knew how to put outfits together. <laughs> But she walked on campus, and I saw her first time. My eyes was like, well, I just could not stop following her. You know, I was just so attracted to her. And so my first year was good. We, we started the band, of course, like I always like to do. And then Tamara and I got to know each other, not just because of the band, because she was a backup singer in the band. And then um, we had a history class that started at 7.45 in the morning. She's not a morning person. I tend to be a little more of a morning person. And so she would drift into class. I would give her all the notes that I'd taken, you know, because so, she, she would show up at her mind's 8, 20, 25 or whatever. Yeah. So the girl that I was with, she broke up with me, which kind of broke my heart, but it was the best thing that ever happened to me because she was awful. Yeah. And then Tamara broke up with her then boyfriend and we just really hit it off. It just really worked. Within about three weeks, we knew we were going to get married. It was all very, very quick. And yeah. much to her parents' chagrin, they were not happy. They did not like me. Oh, no. Um, they liked the old boyfriend much better. He was a schmoozer, and I'm an introvert. I'm not a schmoozer. But yeah, I just thought she was, and I still do. She's like the coolest person I've ever met. I've never met anybody so driven. Yeah. I've never met anybody that will challenge me to, to get out of my introvert shell so much. Right. Who just appreciates me for who I am. They got married in 1986, when Tamara was 20 and Mr. Brown was 21. He's just always been the one, you know, so. Oh, I love it. And with that, he's a proper adult with an art degree. He had kept in contact with his favorite high school teacher, and so he started teaching at his alma mater, the place where our paths met. And it turns out that me and the other students were not his biggest problem. There was <laughs> worse kids than me, is what you're saying. There were, yeah, and I would rather not name any names. But yeah, no, no, we won't do that. <laughs> there was definitely one at Pilsen Christian that I will always remember. Yeah, so... <laughs> Her mom came in and even yelled at me about something in the middle of class and just kind of, yeah, that was not good. Which was worse, the students or the parents? Yes, yeah, we the parents. <laughs> it's always the parents. It's, it's always the parents, yeah, because yeah. they had a sense of entitlement more than the kids did. You know, I, I think I had a good relationship with the kids, but some of the parents were like, especially back at that time, you know, I was doing the band and things like that, so I had long hair, and they're like, oh, this guy, was, you know. They didn't trust me and, you know, they couldn't get past how I looked, some of them, you know, 
So that was definitely a stigma that I had to kind of work through. It's like I can't get any traction with the parents here at this school. Even seven years in, it was you were still getting that. A little bit from parents. Yeah, I'd get the steam guy from some of them. You're not. You're never going to grow up. Why would you do that? <laughs> you know? Right. I just want to do what I want to do. I've always been kind of free spirited about that. So. Pretty sure your Bible class was also my favorite class. My favorite oh, Bible class, for sure. Did you play music? Yeah, I got in trouble for that too. So, for playing music? Well, yeah, because it was it was such a conservative school and their choice of music was having Christian music only. Kids kept saying, you know, well, we have to run this, can we listen to some music? And I said, okay, well, I'll pick some things out and I'll make a mixtape and we can play it very quietly during class. It included some music that I thought was okay, you know, and it wasn't necessarily all Christian music. I threw in um, a Jane's Addiction song. Yeah. <laughs> then caught stealing, you know? Uh-huh. And so, and understanding all the words in there, I don't, I mean, it's, it's about shoplifting. Okay, I get it. Um, and I think that there's a lyric in there that sounds like she's saying fuck or something. Um, but I don't think he is. Because uh-huh. I had the radio-friendly version of the, the CD or whatever, and I just recorded off of that. Yeah. And so, anyway, Jenna went and marched off to Mr. Green right after the class. Oh, no. And he keeps storming in the room saying, how dare I play this heathen music in my room? You should be more responsible. You know, you are molding your minds at this point. And he said, you have this picture of these it was U2 poster on my wall. He said, I can't believe you would have these kinds of things in here. You shouldn't be playing this. And Jana is standing right there with her arms folded, nodding the whole time. <sighs> and so, yeah, that was that was kind of the end of that. So then I had to take down the U2 poster. And I just took it down and turned it around and put it behind some stuff <sighs> so that he couldn't complain about it. And I didn't play any more music in class. Mm. And the kid asked why. And I said, well, you know, I'm not supposed to. That's <sighs> the end of it. So, oh, my gosh. I need you to understand how much Mr. Brown's music meant to us. I was raised on Amy Grant with only peripheral knowledge of pop music. And middle school is when you start getting exposed to real music. Grunge was working its way up with Nirvana and Stone Temple Pilots. So the music Mr. Brown shared with us was mind-blowing. Truly, my life was forever changed, not only by secular music, yay, but also different genres made by Christian artists, including his band, The Furies. Yeah, we definitely had that connection, too. So a lot of the kids that were in my classes came to the concerts. And so that was fun. And yeah. then Tamara worked at Hot Topic. So they, it was this huge circle, you know. So you had the kids that went to the concerts. They went to the store. They had a pretty big teenage fandom. We would go places like, do you remember Cafe Intermezzo? And the yep. uh-huh. So we would go there and Tamara and I would try to go have dinner or something. And it was always a you know, kid that knew us or whatever. And they want to come over and talk about hair color or piercings or something. Or the band. It's like, we can't even have a dinner together. We can't go anywhere. Uh-huh. So you were living that Fresno Famous lifestyle. Yeah, the Fresno Famous. Yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> the original band members were all church youth directors, which I did not know back then. We were all youth directors. So Tamara and I were youth directors at Calvary Presbyterian. The music evolved over the years. It was changing by the bands that I was influenced by. So first it was like light alternative, 
the cranberries mm-hmm. and barium and stuff like that. And then as grunge came in, it became very grunge influenced. So more like Soundgarden influenced movie. The music became heavier and heavier and heavier because once we got into the grunge thing, and then Wayne was our manager, he knew a lot of bands that were up here, like Oregon and Washington. Uh-huh. And so our house was a halfway point between Los Angeles, where they played, and you know the Pacific Northwest. And so all these bands would come and stay in our house. In exchange, they would give us shows up here. Oh, so okay. We bought that van. And we would travel, and so in the summertime, we would travel up here. That's the first time I kind of got my taste of the Pacific Northwest and just kind of fell in love with this place. It became more punk grunge, and Cameras was like the focal point of the, the band, and she was very a strong female lead to have in that spot. Yeah. And I think she had some really good positive influence on, you know, young women or girls at that time, because... A lot of the music wasn't female driven, you right, know, and I right. got us kind of like, you know, we tried to get signed with a label called Tooth and Nail, which is based out of Seattle. Right. They were a Christian label here and they were signing a bunch of bands. And we're like, you know, we, we kept courting them. We would send them packets of all of our music and, yeah. you know, these spiels just to be on their, their radar. Right. I could never get anything out of them, you know. It, it was because it was female lead. It was this whole weird church misogynistic thing just didn't it didn't mm-hmm. jive you know and so we played a couple shows up here at something called tom fest and that was back in the late 90s it was kind of like a christian woodstock but not the one they do in the midwest which is what was that one called i don't remember but um brandon was the like one tooth and nail he would never come to our shows. i mean we knew it was because we had a female lead singer who would have kicked his ass if she would have met him i'm sure yeah <laughs> <So>. totally <laughs> Locally, they played with the Blank Daisies, another female-fronted band, and they played with punk band Blenderhead, if that's a name you know. But the big one was an unknown pop-punk band that opened for them. Our first show in Seattle, and the guy, Bill Power, was his name, he says, I've got this little gig for you guys. Want to come out and play it? And we're like, Seattle, of course we're going to come play. Right. He says, it's at the place is called House of Funk, but don't get your hopes up too high. It's, it's basically just a frat house. And I said, okay, well, that's fine. We'll come and play. So he said, my, my friends have a new band, and um, they're going to go ahead and open for you guys. I said, okay. What's the name of the band? MXPX. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and I said, I, okay, I never heard of them. So, yeah, MXPX opened for us at the House of Funk. Oh, how funny. Like 1995 or 96. They became big, like, fairly quickly. And so nobody, none of the students believed me. I said, oh, you know, MXPX opened for us. I still have photos of them yeah. opening for us. So, yeah, that was funny. Uh, how, how different your life would have been had Tooth and Nail picked you up. <laughs> you know what? We probably would have been poorer than we are now. <laughs> because they, they front you all this. Money. So, oh, you know, we'll give you like $20,000, which would have been a decent amount of money back in 1995. Yeah, but not you know, enough to live But then you've of. got to pay all that back. And you might have like more yeah. religious trauma, so. Oh yeah, <laughs> definitely more religious trauma. It would have been way worse. Yeah. It would have been destitute and, and religiously just vacant. Yeah, yeah. vacant. After the Furies, he got into making gothic industrial music. Okay, so 
now that you have a good understanding of the Furies and how cool they might have been to 90s youth, let's return to the private school with all its sheltered kids and uptight parents. His colleague had outlawed the mixtape, but that wasn't the only thing that Mr. Brown cherished that was banned from campus. Well, I also remember Tamara coming to class. Yeah. I mean, I, of course, don't remember exactly what she said, but I thought she was the coolest oh. <laughs> and was hanging on her every word, whatever they were. <laughs> okay, you probably don't know this, but this happened after the fact. She was actually told she couldn't come back to campus. I need more details. I don't know if she came to meet me for lunch or what was going on, but it was her silver phase of Hot Topic. So she had like this silver mini skirt kind of dress. And she was wearing her silver, like she had these silver boots too. And so some mother saw her and said, who is that? He shouldn't be here. And so the word got to Mr. Schultz and he's trying to maintain, you know, head count for students. And so he called me in after and said, um, so I have some, a very concerned parent come up and um, say that they saw your wife come to school. And, oh yeah, she came in and said that they, 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 what she was wearing was completely, I think she may have had a t-shirt on that said something like a band name or something too, that wasn't palatable to this lady. Um, I don't think it was bad religion or anything like that, but I think it was, you know, like, and so anyway, he was trying to be as diplomatic as possible. And he said, well, honestly, he said to maintain enrollment and things like that, we just need to be super, conservative about things and I, I don't think it's a good idea for her to come on campus anymore i went home and talked to her about it and she's like that's fine i don't want to be here anyway you know i don't i really don't care before this happened tamra had actually come and spoke during bible class remember what he said about her role in the furies she was a positive influence inspiring and real so she talked about her growing up experience in her life. She got into drugs and stuff a little bit, you know, and then how God kind of changed her life. That's the gist of what she talked about. As got far it. As I remember, I don't remember great detail. Yeah. And the kids really related to her. Yeah, so totally. It was a positive thing. Yeah. Which <sighs> Mr. Schultz didn't take into account when the other lady decided that she shouldn't be welcome there anymore. Yeah. There yeah. are more to human beings than the skirt that they might wear. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I really can't believe he didn't quit right then. Mr. Clogger says, I'm surprised you're still here. He says, I would have left. And I said, well, I need the money, so I have to say, right. even though they weren't paying that much, I was still getting a paycheck that was something, yeah. you know. But this kind of stuff was the norm in the EWCCCV. There was almost no point in fighting it. In fact, it wasn't happening just at work. It was happening for different reasons at church, too. So we had some really bad experiences with some of the churches where we thought, oh, these are the, these are the musician churches, the Christian musician churches. We'll go there. It was, it, what's the one from Costa Mesa? Um, He's thinking of Calvary Chapel. Uh, we started going there and the band, the crucified went there. And that's kind of what we kind of got to be friends with them a little bit. And they said, Oh yeah, I should come to our church. Everybody's cool. Like, oh, great. Great. You know, you can have a Mohawk and tattoos and I can do that. 
Well, that's the one that they were so conservative about children and birth control, which we had no idea about. We started asking because we were used to helping out with youth groups. Can, can we help out with the youth group? We'd love to help out with the youth group. I'm like, no, nah, you need to give it some more time. And so we learned after the fact that the caveat of helping out with youth group was you had to have kids <laughs> when we weren't going to have kids. So they just kept putting us off. Well, in the meantime, some of the, the musicians used to have this party. It was all guys and girls, and they bought their kids or whatever, and they tried this little divide and conquer thing that we were totally unaware of. We were totally caught off guard. One of the guys says, hey, um, do you mind? We need to go down and get some more ice. So I was like, okay, sure, I'll take you down. So in the car, like almost as soon as we get in the car, so I was talking about how evil birth control is and how this is some sort of an abortion you're doing monthly with birth control. I'm oh like, my what God. are you talking about? No. Well, they did the same thing to Tamara as soon as I left. So the lady started hammering her about all the birth control and how evil it was. And it's like, did you try the rhythm method? And Tamara's like, this is bullshit. <laughs> no way. I'm not pushing out a kid, you know, like every few years. Anyway, after the party, we like began looking at each other going, what the hell just happened? That kind of ended that relationship with that church. And a lot of those people too were just like, and then we also saw how misogynistic the guys were towards their wives right they were just so mean you know and it's like i don't i would never treat Tamara that way and they talked down to them and treated them like they were stupid and i'm like how is that biblical <laughs> you know <laughs> i don't know i don't think that it was, is that was the, it isn't it isn't at all and so yeah that was the first time we really got kicked out of church and i i mean we didn't get kicked out we we left we fled like, no we don't need this business Next, they ended up at a vineyard church. During the kind of a heyday of the Furies, and things were going really well, we attracted a lot of really, like, street kids. You know, skater kids, punk kids, kids that were not appealing to the regular church family. Their youth group was about, high school youth group was about eight kids. And then what we started doing is when we would have shows, we would like invite kids to come to this church and say, it's a cool place, you can be yourself, you don't have to change what you're wearing, just, you know, come to church. And so they actually rented out a little side building next door, and we almost packed the place. It was just Sunday after Sunday. So they're doing their thing, working at the church youth group, doing shows and inviting kids to come to church, telling kids that they're safe to be themselves at this rock and roll church, because that's what they believed. And then one of the regular, you know, church kids got caught smoking. Well, then oh, that no. they turned on us and they said, oh, my God, <laughs> right. it's this Fury band and all these rough kids they're bringing in. And so the next week we try to go to church. We start walking to start helping these group. They walked down the hall and confronted us and said, what you're doing is great, but it's not for us. So we're not you're not welcome to come into the youth group room. Oh and we're like, what? So we just kind of turned on walked out. We're looking at each other. What did we do? We're just trying to expand the group and bring kids to God. Their little motto was come as you are. Well, apparently no, right. <laughs> that's not what you're supposed to be doing at the vineyard. They actually tried to do a break-off vineyard group at their house with the associate pastor. 
And that ended in the most ridiculous fashion. And we had a lot of people coming, like 40 or 50 people. So we would have musicians come. Venue is very music forward. So yeah. we were at a band. I was in the band. Tamara was in there. And then we had this one guitar player guy. Well, this is in the mid late 90s. Tamara's working on Hot Topic. And they had these tchotchke things, like these bath soaps and things like that. And they came in these bottles. Uh-huh. And they were in the bathroom. We had one bathroom in the house for all these people. So she had them on the counter kind of lined up in a decorative way. And one of them was called Night Spells. Okay. <laughs> it's bath soap. It is simply bath soap. We are, we are not sacrificing children in the bathroom. So the guitar player, we did not know very well. He and his wife, I guess, had saw this in the bathroom and freaked, went to Ron, the pastor, and said, we need to have like a blessing over their house and get the demons out. And we're like, over bath soap? Oh my gosh. <laughs> it was like this division point in the church. These people were no. going to leave and take <gasps> other people with them because of bath soap. No. At our house. It got to be that bad. <laughs> and so it was the dumbest thing. We were laughing and like angry at the same time. We're like, totally. this is so stupid. We should just tell him if he's not comfortable with our bath soap, don't come back. <laughs> <laughs> oh we are we are opening our house to you and you're going to start criticizing and going we're going to go to our underwear drawer next how bad is this going to be uh, you know and the good news is this all kind of happened as Tamara's promotion was mm-hmm. working with Hot Topic right we ended up renting the house and moving to Southern California within a month of that incident so right. it was good just to get out of that but uh, it was just a lot of narrow minded people we were dealing with and we just kind of We can't do this. You know, it's it's not healthy for us. It's too stressful. They made a big life change, moving away from the city they grew up in, leaving the school where after seven years, Mr. Brown still didn't work full time. The churches that believed night spell bath soaps are used in satanic rituals, and it worked out. He easily found a Lutheran school that really wanted him, and he started teaching sixth grade. They had me teaching some junior high courses too, you know, just to kind of work me into the whole thing and get me kind of looped in. And I did continue to teach ceramics a little bit, but I was teaching art, middle school history, Bible, and then they even would, just to keep me full time, they had me like doing iPad implementation for preschool, which is really weird. Preschoolers? Preschool, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I had a, I had a pretty good reputation there, I think. Yeah, so. But being able to enjoy and work effectively with middle schoolers is such a gift. Like, not everyone can do that. No, I've always been pretty patient. I think that's where my gift lies, just being super patient. <laughs> so you taught a lot of different subjects. What was your favorite? History. Definitely history. Because I've always enjoyed it. Different eras, like World War II and in the French Revolution. Those are definitely my favorites to teach. Here's how we might start out his class. History is boring. I'm going to start with that. <laughs> History is completely boring because what you've been taught in the past is just dates you have to memorize and names. Let's just look beyond that. It's the people behind the story. That's what makes it interesting. And what kind of shows do you like to watch? I only like to watch this and that. Well, why do you like to watch it? Because we like to know about the people. I said, well, that's what we're doing here. This just happened a long time ago. So I'm going to tell you about some of the people, and we're going to learn their story behind 
their actions and what they did and why, you know, that, that makes it interesting. It's not, they did this on a certain day, right? And, oh yeah, that makes sense. Teaching history at a private Christian school can require some customization. The history textbooks were from a company called Abeka Book, which is out of Pensacola, Florida. So that kind of gives you a little idea of where it was coming from. Uh-huh. Super conservative, ultra Baptist, and very pro South. And they were terrible textbooks. So when we got into the sections, they always made the South, it was just gleaming. Things were perfect in the South. You know, I don't know why we went to this whole Civil War thing. It didn't make any sense to them. <laughs> um, and so there was this section that talked about um, Lee. Yeah. I think it was Lee, yeah. So it was Robert E. Lee. And, and what a great Christian example he was because he led the Bible study for his slaves every day. <laughs> well, we're overlooking something here. Yeah, slaves. Is, is that okay? So I used the history book as a rough outline, and they gave me a lot of leeway on what I could teach, which was great. I really appreciated that from the school. They, they completely trusted me. You know, everything was fine. I'm not going to mislead them. I'm the, the children. I'm not going to lead them down some terrible path. You get the deal with the textbooks. But I'm going to let Mr. Brown keep talking about how he approached this chapter, because I think it shows his teaching style. I always brought out that book at the beginning of every year. I was slamming on the desk and I'd go, here's the book. And I said, just because it's written, doesn't mean it's true. And God gave you a brain. And I want you to use that brain. So when you look at this book, I want you to use something called a critical eye. So behind everything that's written is an agenda. Do we know what an agenda is? I've explained that to them. I said, yeah. okay, so let's look at some background about this particular company. So I'd go to the website and I'd say, okay, this book is published in a southern state. That's going to make them, what do you think? Pro-north, pro-south. And so we'd have a little discussion based on that. I said, okay, so, you know, there are going to be some things written in this book that may be true, but there's also things that are going to make the South look like it's a wonderful place to live and there were never any problems before the Civil War. You know, what are some things that happened? Why do you think the Civil War occurred? And so we'd read through some of the things, slavery and states' rights and all these kinds of things. Okay, so we're going to read through the text together because I want you to understand it and I want you to think about it critically. And I want you to develop three questions, your own original questions. And I want those questions to be questioning the textbook. Why did they write this? Why did they do that? What's the story behind what they're writing? And so we would read through that chapter on Lee and then tell me what what you disagree with. It's okay to disagree. The screen's fine. means you're thinking. And so it was always fun to go through that chapter with them to watch them process that and kind of like, oh, now you have that aha moment, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, understand what's written behind the text. How are they trying to influence you? Right. You know? You know, and how do you feel? How does that contradict what you already believe in? And so it, it, it's such a fun age when you're teaching middle school like that because they're just starting to develop some of their own thought processing away from their parents. Yeah. The things that they've been taught by their parents. Yeah. yeah. And what good skills to learn, like especially now with all the misinformation out there. And yeah. Yeah. Use your critical thinking skills. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> when we got to the Native Americans, I'm like, yeah, I've got some ancestors out there who may disagree with what this textbook's going to say. 
Yes. It, this, this land was inhabited before all the white people came over. So they displaced a lot of people. It wasn't just open and nobody's there. Just come on over and right. set up a homestead. Yeah. <laughs> what yeah. would Jesus do? Right. You know? <laughs> probably not <laughs> Look this. Really like, yeah, yeah. Probably not that, right? He taught at that school with its textbooks that should be used as doorstops for 20 years. And by the end, he was tired. It paid basically nothing. He was working seven days a week between that and his side hustles, metal fabrication work, and the art gallery, and barely keeping afloat. He loved the kids, but the wealthy, demanding parents were tiring. But during his time there, he learned a lot. Not only how to be a good teacher, like you just heard, but also things that shifted his own belief system, the one that got planted back in ninth grade. Like I said, I was still caught in a lot of that. It, it had to do with trying to be perfect. I mean, always trying to do your best is one thing, but then always trying to be perfect is something that you could never do. And that's part of my, I mean, I'm kind of a perfectionist in the first place. And so if I don't follow through on my own and, and do something in, in a way that I think aligns with what God or the Bible says, I always felt like I'm terrible. You know, I deserve to go mm-hmm. to hell. But then I met at the Lutheran school. It took years still, you know, even though it was in my forties, finally I'm like realizing that God is love and he's not like always coming at you for things that you're doing wrong. And so I met uh, the pastor that was there. And so just kind of meeting with them and talking about what grace, versus guilt is, you know, and what the relationship with God is meant to be. It's not supposed to be this. And, you know, God's not this imposing figure. It's supposed to be inviting. And the, the transition to where being able to forgive yourself for things that you've done, you know, or just shortcomings or whatever. I don't know. It, it, it's still a process. I mean, I'm not all the way through it. I'm, I'm not going to say that I've come through from the other side, but I still, I am still very hard on myself, but you know, at the same time, I have to realize that I'm human. God made me human. We're fallible. Just be kind to myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, stop mm-hmm. hitting myself over the head so much. Mm-hmm. So, and it was, it was just meeting with pastors and realizing that they're real, real people too. I always, I always put them on some sort of a pedestal thinking, you know, they've, they've got it all together and, and meeting and becoming friends with pastors that weren't all, have didn't have everything together. They've been to divorces and terrible times in their life, mm-hmm. you know, and, and watching them, how they dealt with those situations. And it, it just made me feel better about myself. <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. know. That's kind of a weird thing to say, but, you know, watching somebody else kind of stumble and say, no, no, well, that makes me okay too, because, you know, yeah. we're all just human. longer believes in all the rules that he learned in Christian school, the guidelines for life created by men. He's trying to be more forgiving of himself. But after what he's experienced with churches and even within teaching, I had a question. Why okay. why didn't you reject the thing that kept rejecting you over and over again? You mean church? And just Christianity in general, like how did you, it it sounds like you were able to compartmentalize, like this is a church, a group of people that's rejecting me versus like the God of Christianity. But how did you do that? Or why did you do that? 
I think if, if you go back to some very basic core things, I was working with this guy. I was also working Hot Topic too. And there was a guy I was working with. And we were just kind of talking about God and religion and stuff. But he said something to the effect of he couldn't ex- excuse or, or take God out of the equation of life because of how everything is so well orchestrated. You know, how the earth works, solar system, and all this kind of larger picture stuff. And he said he, he would call himself an atheist other than that. He says there's, there's no other way that this could work without some sort of outside influence, whether it be God or something else. And I just kind of cling to that little belief because I, I, I look at the world kind of the same way. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I, I think that I've always had this belief that there is a God. And we've gotten to be friends with people from India who are they're loosely Hindu, you know, but I think if you look at the beliefs, there's a lot of commonality between, you know, kindness and reciprocation of kindness and those kinds of things. So I, I'm not going to just bail on those beliefs of God. I think there is definitely God, but I think that people always get in the way. And that's what I meant when saying, you know, church is very political. Mm-hmm. And, and I have to just kind of look beyond the people and look beyond what they're trying to do. There's always a motive. I don't know. I just don't know if I have an interest in going back to church because it's just been such a hard experience. But it doesn't mean I'm not going to not believe in God. They haven't been to church in three years. Sometimes he feels guilty about this, but most times it feels right. And he doesn't need the building or even those people to feed his inclination toward God. Have you been to the Pacific Northwest? Yes, it's gorgeous. It's amazing. I mean, we had some rain this morning, and I just look outside, and I look at the mountains and all the creation. I'm like, that's where God is. <laughs> he's, not, mm-hmm. he's not waiting for me while I'm sitting in some pew somewhere. And so when I'm out experiencing that, that's like way better than church. <laughs> I'm like, I'm really focusing on God at that point. So I'm looking at everything he's put together and how it all works mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's, that's definitely my cathedral is just getting outside looking at the ocean and pine trees and eagles this is kind of what it's all about after 30 years mr brown left teaching he and tamara have adapted to a new life in seattle washington a peaceful life free of mischievous middle schoolers and their obnoxious parents and free of the constraints inherent in working in a Christian framework. So I wonder what he thinks the good parts of teaching in a Christian school are. Because you're not so scripted by the state, you can, and like I said, because it was a school where they very much trusted me and what I had to say, you could bring in those conversations like we just talked about, like what would Jesus do? You know, how, how does this incident in history reflect what we should be doing as Christians, you know, Christian honor, Christian belief systems and things like that. You know, just being able to kind of make that connection in with, with the kids themselves. I would talk to them about my own journey too. You know, what, what is it like to go from somebody who has fed the belief that you need to feel guilty about everything your whole life and your existence. <laughs> and then you come into like grace those are very much juxtaposed beliefs, you know, and 
explaining my journey to them. And, and I think that that, it really did connect with a lot of them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the important part. I think it's, it's not necessarily history it's, or, you know, whatever you're teaching mathematics, it's making that firm connection with somebody and they, they remember you in some way and understanding, you know, it's sharing your beliefs with them, I guess. Yeah. What it is. Mr. Brown emphasized that being yourself is the most important. That's what a lot of Christian education is missing because you see a lot of this, the false guises people put on to be a teacher. It's like, you don't need to do that. You know, just be yourself. That's the hardest part is if you're not being yourself, they try to strive to be something that they're not, that the students are There's this great podcast called Grapevine about the struggles of teachers and public school boards in Texas. And these comments from two students stuck with me. Religion is a very important part to a lot of people's lives here. Mm -hmm. And again, that's not inherently bad. But when that religion is used as a weapon, then that is when it starts becoming something that is a hostile force. I really feel like there are two sides to it again. Like there are the people who are traditional Christians who love, you know, love their neighbor and they hold to that. And I feel like those are the people that I, I really appreciate in my life because they bring in that kind of more divine layer to their support where mm-hmm. they're trying to explain like God loves you no matter, you know, you are created in the right way and you deserve to be here. a divine layer to their support, a deepening of a relationship because you're free to connect with one another on a level that may be inappropriate at school or the workplace. This isn't guaranteed just because you attend a religious school or even go to church, but it could be available. And I think this is what Mr. Brown valued as a teacher and what I experienced as his student. I found a letter from Mr. Brown in one of those old yearbooks, and I'm going to read it to you in almost its entirety, because maybe this is what divine support sounds like. Every year I sit down to write my class a letter saying goodbye, and I wish you well. This will be the hardest of them all to write. Each one of you is very special to me, and writing this letter only reminds me that I may never see some of you again. At this time, things are very uncertain for me, and I don't know what I will be teaching, but hopefully something. I hope that you will look back on this year and remember good things. I know that when you do remember this class, you won't remember all the topics we covered. I do hope that you will remember the people in this class, and if you do, think of me. I hope you will see a person whose sole ambition was to follow Jesus. No matter which choice you make in life, I want you to know that I will always love each of you. Even if you believe no one cares, I will always care. Some of my students from the past, when they get into high school, they don't want to admit that they were ever in junior high. So when they see me in the hallway, they completely ignore me or pretend I'm not there. Please don't forget what has happened here, because that will hurt me a lot. I know that many years will pass, but we will be together again. There are certain classes, and that was a really, really good class. I had such a fond memory of that time period, too. 
it, it was the chemistry of the class. It was the personalities in the class that made it what it was. Because some, I've had classes before you just have trouble relating to sometimes. And you just, you don't have that same connection with them because they're, you know, I mean, you look at them as kids, but they're people. You know, having that strong connection with people, understanding them and them understanding you. And, and of course, once I went on, there were other years in my teaching that I had that really strong connection with too. And that's missing right now, that bond that you have with students. It's one thing I really miss. Um, property management is just, it's a, it's a job. Mr. Brown shared so much of his life with his students that they asked him to write down those childhood stories. I would just start telling them stories like this, and they just really hooked them in and made them relate to me and formed this bond, connection. They would always come up and tell me some more stories, you know? And I had a student finally just tell me, Mr. Brown, I need to write those stories down. And he actually gave me like a blank bound book. He says, here's the book, write the stories down. And eventually he did. He wrote a book about all the adventures he had with his dad and big brother and self-published it during all that post-teaching free time. It's really a goofy name. It's called 26 Tales of Husky Boy, Squarehead, and Pokey Jimmy. So, <laughs> yeah, you have to read the, the book to understand the names. I, I can send you a copy if you want. Oh my gosh, I would love that. Yeah, absolutely. After this interview, I was reminded that at the behest of my mom, Mr. Brown actually took a group of us teepeeing. I can't imagine what he heard in that car. And my friend Gerard said that Mr. Brown took him and his friends teepeeing. So basically, Mr. Brown was playing both sides of the eighth grade teepee war. So I guess I'll forgive him for sending me to the principal's office after that 666 crawling incident. He was patient, but he still had his limits. Sorry, I'm not making as much sense this morning. Maybe I need to have no, a little no, no. beer or something. I get conversation no. would flow so much better. Uh, it really <laughs> would. I'm so sorry we are just not at the bar right now. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, if I, once I have a beer, I'm like, I have so much more clarity. It's so true. The words yeah. about the universe flow more freely. <laughs> they do. They do. It makes so much more sense to me. 